please be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for gathering us here in this place. May we hear these words and be fruitful so that as we share our fruit with the world, it may blossom and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Got to admit, I almost wasn't here today. I almost lost my religion yesterday. And if not my religion, at least my voice. You see, realizing that this is the state of South Carolina and you don't immediately know what I'm talking about, the NCAA tournament's going on. And being the Tar Heel fan that I am, I don't miss much of it, especially when the Tar Heels are playing, which they did yesterday against the number one seed, Baylor Bears. The Tar Heels didn't have a great season, so they're an eighth seed. And so the two of them matched off, and not many people gave North Carolina much hope in winning. Baylor immediately jumped off to a four-point lead, but that's the last time they saw the lead for a very long time because the Tar Heels came roaring back and got really hot. And at halftime, we led by 13, and then coming out of the half, we went on another run, and with 10 minutes to go in the game, University of North Carolina led the defending national champs by 25 points. It was great. Until... One of the reasons for our huge lead was because of a player named Brady Manick who transferred in for his uh, graduate year at North Carolina, and he was hot. Oh, he was just lighting it up. And then after we got a 25-point lead, he went down, went up for a rebound, and his elbow came back, and he hit another player in the head. That is an immediate foul, either a flagrant one or a flagrant two. Flagrant one usually means that it's incidental contact um, to someone's head with an elbow, and which gives the other team two free throws and the ball. Flagrant two, usually intentional and much more and much harder, is two free throws, the ball, and an ejection from the game. He was ejected from the game. And from that time, Baylor staged what tied the largest comeback in NCAA history. And I was not happy. <laughs> I'm quite certain the referees heard me in Texas. My wife certainly heard me in the next room, thought I was having a heart attack. Um, thankfully, after Baylor came all the way back and tied it up and brought it into overtime, North Carolina was somehow able to squeak it out, which is a good thing. Because had they not, I might have killed someone. <laughs> but at the very least, I would have been playing a different game other than basketball today. I would have been playing what many of you have also played when your team loses, the blame game. Now, I would have been rightfully so because if you go and Google UNC versus Baylor, the word that you're going to see right next to it is ref. Because let me tell you, folks, not only did they make that horrible call, they didn't call anything on Baylor for the next 10 minutes. Nothing. And the, and the Tar Heels were called for every little thing, and they were pressuring and hacking, and it was just nuts. And I'm not just talking as a Tar Heel fan. I'm telling you, sportscasters were going crazy about how, like, that these refs might, must have bet on Baylor or something. It was awful. Awful. But that's part of the blame game, right? 
I mean, that's what we do because clearly it couldn't have been the Tar Heels' fault for blowing a 25-point lead. That would never happen. No. But then if it wasn't the refs, well, the other team cheated. Or for what uh, the other team, well, that coach needs to go, right? We've all played the blame game. If you're a sports fan, you have played the blame game if your team lost every time. It's either the refs, the players, the other players, or the coach. And if it's a coach enough time, then we play the blame game until he gets another job, right? But it's not just sports. Let's be honest. We play the blame game about everything. I mean, if you've ever been in a wreck, chances are you blame the other person first. Because what were they doing, you know, going at a green light? I mean, they should have known that you were in a hurry. Or, you know, I mean, if, if you had a little brother or sister when you were a kid, it was always their fault. I don't care what it was. You, you could have gone and smacked them in the head, but they deserved it. Um, get in trouble at school, always the kid next to you, wasn't me. Doesn't matter. We play the blame game. And then when you go on, on a bigger scale, when tragedy hits, we're always playing the blame game. I mean, when it came to 9-11... Who did we blame? We blamed the terrorists. We blamed the Muslims. We blamed the Iraqis. We blamed the Saudis. We, we blamed everybody. Did we not? When Katrina hit, a natural disaster, we blamed FEMA and we blamed George Bush. Um, when when uh, every time there's a school shooting, who do we blame? The kid that shot up the place? No, no, no. Parents? Video games, music, guns. We play the blame game and shift the blame as far away from ourselves and what we believe as possible. Do we not? Because it can never be our fault. Never, never. But we've always done that with tragedies. And then when we can't blame other people or other organizations and it's when we don't know who to blame, we blame God, right? When real tragedy strikes and we don't know the answer to why, well, then it must be God. God must have done this. God must have caused these tornadoes to happen. God must have caused this natural disaster. God must have caused these mistakes. Now, granted, we don't put too much stock in that. But in Jesus' day, that was their theology. That's what they believed. They would, uh, they would credit God for it, but the blame would rest on the people that it happened to. They would go victim blaming is what we call it now, right? You blame the victim for everything. And so that's exactly what Jesus is hearing about. These folks came to him and, and were telling him about Pilate. You know Pilate. He's the guy that had Jesus crucified. He apparently went in or his soldiers went in to one of the synagogues and executed some of the Galileans there. And that's what he said, that their blood mixed with the sacrifices because they, they make sacrifices in the synagogues and the temple, right? And so when he actually went into their place of worship and, had, and executed them there and their blood was mixed with that of the sacrifices to God. Not only was it horrible that these people died, but also even more so that they would that they would blaspheme God. And then there was another part where a tower, the Tower of Siloam, fell and killed 18 people. Horrible tragedy. I mean, that's the kind of thing we do hear about things like that now, don't we? 
about buildings falling or, 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 you know, collapsing. But see, here's the thing. For them, guess whose fault it was? It was the people that were killed. They believed that they must have committed some sort of sin. They must have done something wrong to have deserved this. That was their way of getting their head around it. Why would God do this to them? Because they did something wrong. And so Jesus actually asked the questions. Are they worse sinners than anybody else in Galilee? Are they uh, the, the ones that were, that were sacrificed in the synagogue? Were, were these the tower fell on? Were they worse sinners than anybody else? And his answer to them was surprising. No. No. They weren't worse than anybody else. It's not about their sin that this happened. But then he said something that's a little shocking to all. But unless you repent, the same will happen to you. Well, now that, that gets a little scary, right? Because what's Jesus saying here? But it, they didn't have this tragedy on them because they were sinners, but because we're sinners, it'll happen to us? Not really. Because the word repent also means turn around. It means do something different. So he goes on to tell a parable. He talks about this, this landowner who goes onto his fields and he comes to this fig tree. Guess he wants some figs. And he gets there and there's none. So he's a little frustrated, you know. He paid the money for this fig tree. Um, clearly he paid a gardener to take care of it. So he tells the gardener, cut this thing down. It's not, it's not bearing any fruit. And so the gardener says something interesting. He goes, no, 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 no. Give it another year. We'll get, dig a hole around it, put some manure on it. And then next year, if it, if it still doesn't bear fruit, we'll cut it down. Now, on the surface, what does one have to do with the other? But this is what I think. Manure happens. Right? Manure happens. That's the, that's the point. That's what Jesus is saying here. Manure happens. But what happens from the manure? We've got some farmers in the back. What happens when you, with the manure? Hey, that's right. That's where the good soil comes from. It fertilizes it. It makes it better. When you go to the gym and you work out, if you go to the gym and work out, and your muscles are sore when you're done, do, is it a benefit? Yes. When you think of all the problems that you've been through in your life, all the tragedies that you've faced, and you think about your faith life, when you come out the other side, is your faith stronger or weaker than it was before? Exactly. These tragedies that happen in our lives, when manure happens to us, it strengthens us. It helps us realize that God is ultimately still in control. And that we're going to be okay. But sometimes we got to deal with the manure, right? In order to bear fruit, sometimes we got to go through the tough stuff. Now, it's nobody's fault. It's just that life is real. And sometimes life isn't always a bed of roses. Tragedies do happen. But when they do, we, we have to look at them and ask ourselves two questions. And neither one of those questions starts with the word why. The first question is this. What can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? Go back to 
Have any of you flown in a plane since September the 11th, 2001? Remember before that, you could just basically go in, you could show up 15 minutes before your flight because all you had to do was go through a metal detector. And if you took your belt off and keys out of your pocket, you were fine because, you know, nobody had phones back then. But now you basically have to take off almost everything to go through your shoes, you know, pray to God that you don't have holes in your socks or that, you know, your feet don't smell too bad. And, and you can't, you know, all your liquids have to go out and this and that. And it takes forever to get through. Why is that? Because we learned. We learned what happened before, and we made it better. We've been going through a horrible tragedy for the last two years. But think of all the things that we've learned along the way. Case in point, there's a reason we have these screens here. Originally, it was so we could actually see where the camera was hitting when nobody was in these pews. Because two years ago today, I was preaching to a camera. And it was Tony and me and Deborah and four choir members and Damien. And that was it. Two years. Think of all the things that we have learned along the way as a result. So the first thing you ask in the midst of tragedy is, what did I learn? And number two is, what's God calling me to do? It's all well and good if you learn something. But if you don't do anything about it, what does it matter, right? That's what it means to bear fruit. Bearing fruit means we actually do something. I mean, that tree is a fig tree. Is, it a fi is a fig tree still a fig tree if it doesn't produce figs? It is. But what good is that fig tree? So a Christian is still a Christian if it doesn't bear fruit, but what good is it? And so we are called to bear fruit. Around here we say we are called to share our gifts to show God's love. That's what it means. It means taking your faith and putting it into action. And yeah, sometimes we're going to go through some manure to make those actions a little stronger, a little better. But it's still part of the process. It's still something that God works within us to produce that fruit. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been called. We've been called to bear fruit to the world. We've been called to share love to a world that so desperately needs it. To help out those in need. To be there for those that are, that are cast aside. That's who we are. That's what it means to bear fruit. It doesn't mean that life will always be wonderful. But it means that we're never alone. And that in the end... Even the, the worst day in heaven is better than the best day here. And we have that promise. So my friends, even though manure happens, go and bear fruit. Amen.